You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week's Razor's Edge episode revisits three stocks we've covered this year, each of which has had some news or interesting market action recently. We start with Alibaba, the China retail giant was back in the spotlight after the Financial Times reported on new regulatory moves around Alipay, which Alibaba partly owns. We analyzed the news, and Akram makes the case for why this shouldn't have been shocking and why the Baba share price has taken enough hits. Then we talk about Stitch Fix, which has continued to find new bottoms for the stock in 2021 at least. We talk about the recent news around stylists leaving, why Stitch Fix is a stupid stock, and what I'm watching for in today's earnings report, which comes after the close on the day this episode is released. Lastly, Twitter took a downgrade from Goldman Sachs, and there has been some fatigue among the bull community. We talk about what they're talking about and whether the market's focus is where it should be. Quick reminder before we get started. There is now a Razor's Edge newsletter where Akram talks about a lot of these stocks regularly. Paying subscribers get a minimum of two issues a month on a variety of stocks and topics that would be familiar to you as a listener of this podcast. Check it out at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. I'll put a link in the notes. It's on Ghost. The Razor's Edge should be straightforward. Disclosures. Akram is long Twitter, Baba, and Short Yala. I am long Twitter, Stitch Fix, and Apple. We recorded this last Thursday, September 16th. All right, Akram, we're going to revisit a few names that we've covered over the course of the summer as we're now entering the end of the summer season. September sort of has been a little rocky in the markets, but no major changes. We're going to start with... China stocks, and specifically with Alibaba, which the last time we talked about it, we sort of laid out all the issues with investing in China. And then at the end, you kind of said, well, kind of think that Alibaba has to you kind of, it's very investable in the end, despite all of that is sort of the takeaway. And recently, Alipay has been in the news. China, the China government is reported to want Alipay to move their loan offer to a new app. So there's still complications. What's your latest view on Alibaba or on the China stocks in general? 
Well, I mean, I dipped into this space and bought some Baba. Uh, yeah, it's promptly fallen to 10% since, basically. So that's been fun. Sounds like my luck. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, you like, right? Like, after the name falls 50% in eight months. But I think it's, I think, look, I think it's definitely interesting here. The Chinese regulatory crackdown gets, you know, the part of it gets lumped politically. I mean, if you look, if you look at the, what's gone on with the Baba situation, it's not exactly, uh, it's not exactly shocking, right? In what sense? Well, if you, if you look at why they pulled the ant financial IPO and the history of that, and I got a little bit into that in the recent write-up on the newsletter, it's, it's like financial regulation 101. So if you look at the, I mean, the IPO got pulled in, in November, I think it was, if you look at what was going on before, and if you'd read the Ant prospectus, I mean, Ant's consumer lending business had been through a couple changes over the previous two years. So, I mean, Ant's originating a ton of loans in, in the Chinese market, short-term consumer consumer lending. So, I mean, I think when in the prospectus, it's 500 million Chinese people it's roughly a quarter of all short-term consumer credit that was issued in the previous 12 months, right, in the country. So it's not hard to look at it and think systemic risk. And they're operating as a payments, you know, transaction business, not as a bank. And when you get into the, the, the finance side of things, they had been funding that business originally with uh, you know an asset-backed securitization market of which they got up to like nearly seventy percent of that of that market. The issuances were related to uh, Ant Financial. The regulators moved against that because they were concerned and essentially put in capital requirements similar to a bank, which caused Ant essentially to switch to this new model where they developed like a, a partner network of banks, trusts, etc. And they're originating the loans really for them. They take the risk and Ant keeps between 30 and 40% of the, of the interest earned on those loans, right? If you look at that business, I mean, if you look at I mean, when they reported, they went like, I think 2017 was 20% margins, 2018 drops down to 5%. And then like, you know, for the trailing period before the IPO, you know, your margins are up, up north of 30%. The new model being actually even more profitable than, than before. Now, before they, before they listed, I mean, I think it was early September, the financial regulator had reached out, you know, and, and I think they put out like, you know, one, like a policy type note to the banks and basically said, hey, like, you need to do your own risk assessment when you're originating, right? You can't just essentially be fed by Alipay and financial. And a few weeks later, they talked about, I think 98% of the loans originated on, on the platform, you know, or through this third party, third party uh, network. A few weeks later, they came out as the, you know, they're like, look, we expect Ant to essentially hold 30% to the dollar of every loan originated, you know, in capital. 
no longer are you essentially like a, an originator taking taking a fee without any credit risk. And that's where you started getting into this whole dynamic of like once they signaled that, a couple of weeks later, Jack Ma gives his speech. And if you go back to his speech, I mean, people still look at this scenario of like Jack Ma got got slapped around because he challenged the Communist Party. He got too big for his britches, and there's a whole theme going there. But like his comments when he gave that speech were extremely focused around this scenario that was playing in the background. So, I mean, he came out, he's like, our financial regulations for our banking system is like a, an old boys club. And, uh, you know, I mean, like he, he was essentially making an argument that like Alipay should not be treated like a bank. He called the, the China's banking rules and regulations, uh, you know, archaic. And when you think about the scenario you're dealing with here, this is not exactly unprecedented. Like from from a regulatory standpoint, when uh, when you have uh, one platform that's essentially a one stop shop and it's sitting in between the lender and, and the borrower, it's doing the credit scoring, it's originating the loans, it's taking the fees, and it has zero downside. Like you're going to get worried about consumer debt and the types of incentives that exist there that are not mitigating any risk. I mean, they can counter that, you know, the loans we're, we're issuing so far have very low default rates, so on and so forth. But I mean, when you get to, when you get to half of China and a quarter of loans to consumers in a year being originated by you, like you're going to get regulated. <laughs> I mean, what, how does this correspond to the U S market? Like which, because obviously there's a ton of FinTech is super buzzy, but I'm also thinking, so if you think about the U.S., right, like a Square Financial, a Shopify Capital, and and how they do some of this, I mean, they have partners. It's off balance sheet. I think like in a normal situation, they do take some risk. Those loans can be put back if the origination is really bad. But your, your capital constraints of the bank, they work with a very specific bank partner in many cases. It's not exactly the same model, but yeah, I mean, it's regulated. Like they're they're not operating as actual banks, right? Are there equivalents from like the earlier? I'm trying to think of the, and I'm blanking on the names of all the sort of mortgage origination, mortgage originators, the sort of like funkier companies that then. Yeah, I mean, you can you can see you can see analogies to that here, right? If you're a subprime mortgage originator. You can look at it from from a sense of what was going on in securitization in general. I mean, this market actually, you know, like we said, it started with the with the ABS market from a funding from a funding mechanism. So, like, I, I guess because obviously that there was a lot of financial regulation post crisis in the U.S. that sort of addressed a lot of these businesses, and I'm just kind of, I guess that's the last time when we talked about this. One of the points that you made that I think was compelling was that a lot of this. Regulate. We often paint Chinese regulators as ad hoc and without any clear strategic or operating principles to them. And it's just, they're just grabbing the profits and so forth. And when we back out, it's like, well, a lot of these data issues, a lot of these other issues are familiar to us in the US. And maybe the Chinese regulators are heavier handed than the US, but it's, you can kind of see the logic, and it seems like that's what you're painting 
with Ant Financial and Alipay too, is that for whatever they're doing, there's a there is a a logic to it from the governmental perspective and arguably from the from the either systemic risk perspective or the consumer benefit, consumer protection benefit standard or standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue you'd be dealing with the same issue in the United States if you had an ad financial here. So from a regulatory standpoint, they would be looking at this in the same way. But the difference is we have a very strong apparatus on, on the loan side. right? So I mean, I, I think if you look at it from the way the banks are regulated, this is to a degree, like if you look at this business the, and how it's making money, when Ant Financial was IPOing, it was typically compared to PayPal, right? So, and when you look at a PayPal, people look at the total processing volume, and then I think you know what it works out to as as a take rate, you know, from a net revenue standpoint. PayPal doesn't really make money off cross-selling financial services, whatever whatever it's called, Synergy Financial or or whatnot. Alipay is a very different business, so their take rate is you know in the low single digits like four or five bips on the total processed volume they really expect to make money off cross-selling financial products so when you compare it to paypal i mean paypal is a payments processing business i mean the regulators essentially were like look you know focus on payment processing at alipay and separate this whole you know banking financial services from your underlying payments business which is That's that's what the the FT article. That's what it's about, right? Is separate is move the loan business into a different okay, so, app I mean, with a state owned so group. This kind of goes back when the stock was three hundred ten dollars or whatever it was around the time of the the anti PO. The 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 narrative was already clear. I mean, before it's October twenty fourth was the date of the of the Moss speech when he called them like you know outdated supervision and old man's club or whatever with respect to the, the banking rules. It was already clear then that Ant was gonna have to get a, a license to operate as a financial holding company. Okay, so it had to convert. You, the the two apps, Wabe and, and Gbay, that are the 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 consumer loan apps, one's a virtual credit card, you know, one's personal loan. Those two would be separated and within this financial holding company from a organizational structure standpoint. And then the credit scoring business that supposedly Alipay is doing very well on, right? And is, is able to assess credit to scale. And when you talk about data and security, that would be folded into a joint venture with the state in some sort of form, right? So the state has kind of oversight and access and visibility into creditworthiness and that the, the the credit scoring is kind of independent of uh, the payments business and the loan origination business, which again, kind of makes sense. I mean, when you think about how that works in the United States. Right. And, and j- just before, could remind us, remind me, but also listeners, Alibaba, they What's the what's the connection specifically between Alibaba and Ant Group at this point? I know the they own, they own like thirty percent of it. Okay, they they right. used to I mean, they were a hundred percent owner before the whole Yahoo thing, right? And then that's yeah, where so it was separated. And it was right. Jack Ma, Baba retained a, you know about a third, and 
from an investor standpoint, if you go back to the IPO, you know, I think if you look at it from from a Baba standpoint, people were expecting this to be worth close to 300 billion. So about $100 billion on the on the uh, investment side for Baba. Okay. So, I mean, that's as far as the Baba stock connection is there, right? You can also say that, I mean, it's integrated nicely with the, the Alibaba platform from, uh, from uh, a payments, from a driving e-commerce standpoint. Right. In terms of facilitating yeah. the behavior, yeah. yeah, on a third of it. But the point is, you already got like you 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 had a clear like when the stock was double this level, you kind of had a clear path that Ant Financial was going to look. It was going to it was going to be constrained going forward by these financial regulation changes essentially being brought in to a regulatory structure that it was that was it was kind of it was circumventing so in other words the market what its price it's tra- baba is trading at 156 more or less as i sit here half more like you said about half of where it was last october and all we're seeing is what should have been expected at that time playing out in terms of these regulatory steps. Like they're not necess- they're being reported as or treated again to just go back to the FT for a second. On the one hand, they report this news. On the other hand, they have an editorial about Alipay breakup is power grab by China's government, and it goes in with all the other stuff we talked about this summer. What you're saying, I think, is that well, this is not that weird regulatory wise and it's not that surprising and so the only thing that's really changed if you're on alibaba shareholder is that the pre- the stock is now half the price it was 11 months yeah, ago I mean, you definitely should have been avoiding the stock when it started right but when you think about what's happened since it's been incremental i mean some people would argue that the, the FT report was material in the sense that the maybe the assumption was that the business would change from a financial structuring standpoint, but as far as the user and consumer facing experience operationally, nothing was going to change. And the FT report essentially said that from now on, if you're going to be using Alipay, the Wabe and Gbay will be separate apps. Like, so you're going to have to, like, if you're going to get credit from them, you're going to be, you're going to get kicked out of one and you don't have to go into the other. Right. Which is versus a one-stop shop, right? There's more friction being created in the whole. Exactly. That's the perfect word there. But if they have this problem, it, it, it negates kind of the super app dream that people have been falling in love with, right? But if they have this problem, WePay has this problem, right? Everyone has this problem going forward. These two entities have essentially originated loans to like probably more than half the country already, right? So it's not like they have a brand equity problem. It's not like they don't have the customers already. It's not like they don't have any information on their credit background, et cetera, right? So I don't really think it's the biggest deal. I mean, you could even make an argument from a competitive standpoint. It's not the worst thing because now nobody else can kind of chase them in the same manner of 
tightly integrating these things together, which leaves them in the position that they're at, where everybody's already familiar with their apps. And I mean, if they're forced to exit one app to, into the other, it's it, it's some friction, but it's from their sense not really a problem. Well, is is that sort it of the? It would be a problem if somebody else had a way around that. Well, and that's the you know the argument often is made that regulation on the Facebooks of the world at, or on tech, but that it's targeted towards the big ad companies sort of reinforces their position because they're the ones who can best deal with that regulation. And that's sort of Baba having or Ant Financial having the customer base already and the customer patterns already, even if you're adding that friction, they're going to deal with it. They're able to shrug it off more than an upstart would. And so exactly. it, it sort of reinforces their position to a degree. Yeah, that's exactly how you should be looking at it. So I mean, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely analogous. You also have to consider the fact that this business can notably change, right? So if you're going to force them, if you're going to make it more difficult for them to cross sell financial products, then they're going to look to make money as a payments processing business, which may actually be a good thing. Again, like their take rate is single digits. PayPal earns, you know. 20 times that on total processing volume. So if Baba isn't this giant, like if Ant Financial isn't this highly levered uh, to the consumer where you're, you're essentially using the, the payments processing as a funnel and you want to make money off financial products, you know, this was by the way, the dream that, that Elon essentially had with PayPal when he got ousted. He wanted to go in that direction, really. He wanted it to be like a one-stop financial product shop. So when you think about this going forward, like they can rejigger this business. I mean, if you look at this business just over the last three years, like they've adapted to regulatory changes. So they're going to adapt to whatever the regulatory environment is. It's definitely a dominant business. Furthermore, when we talk about Alibaba relative to this, like if you've been factoring in any incremental contribution from Alipay in your you know base case for uh, for Baba as far as uh, what you expect to, to earn as a shareholder it's pretty stupid really I mean one it's an investment book investment books have have been get particularly in China have been notably discounted till there's like some sort of event right so you really should be focused on the underlying business with respect to this. Do you think and the underlying business has gotten cheap enough? You can just view anything that ever comes out of Ant Financial as a windfall that you just did not expect to ever get. So you, you think that uncertainty around Baba's core business is either A, mispriced because this actually isn't that sudden or uncertain, or B, it's priced in enough to where the uncertainty at this point is as much or more to the upside than the downside. Is that sort of the, because I think people still yeah. sort of, you know, me as a, somebody who, whose China exposure is still through multinationals rather than through China, China-based companies itself, it still seems to be in the too hard pile. You're saying the uncertainty is already priced in and you're getting it at a discount to 
the U.S. giants at this point that for a faster growing company. Right. Correct. Is that how you think about it? I wouldn't say, I mean, it's not going to be like, you're definitely taking a hit on growth in this space. We've seen a bunch of stuff going. I'm just, I'm focused on the last 10 days. Consider everything that happened beforehand. This started, I mean, you already had the whole, like, they're going to have to contribute 15 billion, you know, to social good, like the game crackdowns on Tencent and NetEase. And then just got, like recently the news about the meeting around Macau yesterday or whatever it was that had the casino stocks. But China's got, other, I mean, like China's got a COVID outbreak that it's dealing with again, right? Like it's, it's been hit from an economic standpoint more recently than it's been since the first two months of COVID. Well, like when it broke out in China. So they've been, they've been going through uh, their first notable disruption domestically you saw young, young brands i mean starbucks got hit recently uh there's been there's been news the retail sales that out of china was you know we, was weak there's a bunch of things out of china for the last i don't know three four weeks that have been negative so when you say so i just looking at the numbers alibaba's down about 35 30 40 percent in the last six months it's down about 15 percent in the last few weeks you're are you sort of as you're holding here you're are you looking at a time horizon of like i just think something's something's going to clear up and this is going to get better or do you think that this is like how are you thinking about this on a go forward basis well you put regulations in in place and then you move on so the, the chinese communist party and by extension you know the regulatory apparatus around government like they're not trying to cripple the economy that will cause them even more problems, you know? So I think everything they're doing so far is kind of sensible. There's some stuff on the policy side you can get into on the gaming and, and whatnot, where it, it, it makes sense, like the education crackdown and, and these things that, they, that they've gone through, where it makes sense for, for them to, you know, sound off in the short term because there are social issues that were were front and center. But we went through it here with for-profit education. You know, again, like when they crack down, it just looks different. But like, I mean, how many people are talking about, you know, how abusive the system was? Right. And how these companies were essentially like, you know, parasites. Well, I mean, it, Eisman, Eisman got in front of Congress and, and made that pitch. <laughs> well, it's funny. There's also a headline either today or yesterday the FTC, Lena Khan, is the new head, and she's she was the what was she called the antitrust hipster. She was the one who really made was one of the big proponents of the new case for Amazon and big tech in general. And there's a, the headline or the this the brief story without I didn't read their press release, but just the the coverage around it is like the FTC is looking into big tech exploiting loopholes around antitrust, and I think they're basically saying. We don't like how the FTC enforced antitrust policy before in reviewing mergers. And so we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. And it's, I bring that up to say that regulation, what we're seeing in China may be a case of where, yeah, I said heavier handed, where they're actually going out and executing regulations in these different, and not to paint them as better, but it's just more proactive in certain areas in their regulatory approach. Whereas in the US, 
there were so many short ideas in the last decade that were like world acceptance, the payday lender or whatever, where your Herbalife is obviously the classic example where there's an assumption built into the short case of regulators are going to have to step in and take care of this. And a lot of times they didn't. And so I don't know, maybe the market is now looking at China and they're unwilling to say, oh, okay, regulators are actually stepping in where you might expect them to. So instead they're attributing to, well, oh, you can't predict the China government, the Communist Party, it's too hard, et cetera. And maybe it's simpler as, oh, okay, that's that's what regulatory yeah, so risk is about. I feel like it gets lumped together, right? So like it's authoritarian China is just gonna take your stuff, you know, as an investor. When I mean, if you set, if you step back and and you look at what's happened with Baba, particularly Ant Financial, it's not surprising. Like Ant Financial, out of the scale it is, is a systemic risk for the Chinese. You can't originate a quarter of the loans to consumers in the country in a year, and regulators are not going to show up and be like, you know what? Like you need to operate more like this. Because you have this partner network, which is giving you this advantage. And like they're essentially just kind of, you know, feeding off of you, you know, sucking the milk, right? Without making any decisions of their own or any, any, uh, any risk assessment on their own. And if you originate a swath of loans that end up becoming crappy because you have zero downside, the whole system is going to bear that burden. So we might as well step in here. And they've tried a few times, right? Like, like, like Ant's been pretty good at navigating this. If you think about Ma's speech and you put it within, within this light, his speech, you know, it, it wasn't about growth and technology or anything. I mean, it was a very focused speech for an executive. It's no different than uh, the Coinbase guy getting on and being like, hey, you know, the SEC is being mean to us, right? Like they're not being, they're not being practical. Like he essentially lashed out and was like, look, you, you guys are stuck. Like, you know, we're moving, the, we're moving forward and you guys are stuck in the stone ages. Well, it's very self-serving when you're sitting in the position of, of Ant Financial. I mean, of course, you're going to view, uh, you're going to call them an old boys club and outdated regulations when you're an unregulated entity issuing a quarter of the loans in the country. Right. Yeah, it's a preemptive strike. For the consumer. Exactly. And it backfired. I mean, he could have continued doing what was going on, but like what seemed to be the case, which was trying to navigate it behind the scenes. And I mean, he, wa he wanted to create pressure and be like, look, we're, this we're a national champion. I want, to swing the, I want to swing it in our direction. And clearly nobody looked at it that way. Just like, all right, like you're going to have some capital requirements if you're going to issue this way. We need to like, we, we need to, we need to, create a structure where you, your payments business, your credit scoring business, and your consumer lending business aren't all wrapped into one without taking credit risk. Because you're creating the credit risk in the economy and you're spreading it out on everybody else. So if, if, if you have no downside, I mean, like that's how blow up happens, right? Go back to the financial crisis. When you think about the same thing, it's like, hey, we can offload this, right? In their case, they're not worried. I mean, yes, they would take a huge hit one day when origination volumes dropped to next to nil because the bank started puking up defaulting loans, if that did happen. But uh, 
till you got to that day, it, it would be something that's getting riskier and riskier and building and building and building. This is not something that's very hard for regulators to look at and and be like, we you need to change this immediately. But I mean, I don't know how, how much you know about the detail. I mean, like if you looked in the details, I mean, I looked at it last year and that was like, to me, it was like, all right, this thing is going to be a very different dynamic steer clear here for a little while. But from a media standpoint, and particularly when you spend time on Twitter and these things, like it's definitely framed as this kind of non-clear, opaque crackdown. And it's just kind of happening because they don't like the power of these companies. Right. Which may, and again, we, we will come back to Twitter later and, you know, we could tease the Twitter sphere, but it's also right out of, I mean, again, right out of the FT's headline right there, the editorial. So it's, uh, yeah, which may not be fair to the whole thought process behind such regulatory moves. Okay. Any any other thoughts on our vibe out there? Well, you also have the Olympics coming up, right? The Winter, the Winter Olympics. Olympics are in China. Yeah. I would like to think that by the time you get to these Winter Olympics, things have cooled down some. So I think they're. Uh, I think if you're looking at it from I mean, this kind of did factor into my positioning, where I was just like, by that by that window, should be a a different macro take on what's going on in China. And the government's not going to want these like, you know, this persistent negative headlines being what people are focusing on by the time they get to the Olympics. So I think the house cleaning is kind of running its course and it's priced into these names. There are some Chinese names, by the way, that have done all right throughout this. So like this idea that it's been uniform all across these names, like JD.com, yeah, it's down, but still up notably under COVID. Right. So I mean Baba and Tencent have definitely borne the brunt of this. And I do think that like if you're a long-term investor and you got and you're looking at this, like and you're like, all right, well, okay, Ant Financials is zero for me. So, you know, tack off what was 60 billion from from uh my, you know, some of the parts valuation, if I was doing it on this, I think that's kind of absurd. So like Ant Financial is still $150 billion market cap company that was listed. And I think you've now created an incentive for them to move the business completely to just focus on payments. Right. It's sort of a... They're going to look to extract more economic value off the processing that they do. Right. It kind of focuses their business in a way. Correct. So like you're no longer, payments is no longer a funnel slash subsidy for cross-selling more lucrative financial products, right? It's going to be your moneymaker and you're, you're, you should be thinking about the fact that the business is going to be rejiggered in a way to go in that direction. So you're still looking at something that has significant value to you as an Alibaba investor outside of the core Alibaba business. Right. Yeah. That's it, which makes for an interesting setup. And you can't, it's tough to argue that this is not some sort of peak pessimism there. I mean, they are at, they're at 
sort of their COVID lows, the stock, if or maybe even a bit below it, and more or less where Alibaba traded throughout 2019 too. So, and I mean, really now just flat yeah, since like late two seven like mid teens EV, but the you know on the core commerce business. And you're you're giving no value to this investment book or the progress that Alibaba Cloud is making. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, I have no particular edge on the regulatory element here, right? When I mean, we discussed this before. So I don't think anybody does. It just became like at some point, you know, we talked about this being uninvestable, and it still is from that's from that standpoint. But enough has come out that from a trade standpoint. You know, and I, and this is one of those where I'm like, I'm willing to let a trade turn into an investment because I think you could actually do way better as as that clears up. Because look, if the stock goes from 156, you know, to 200, by the time you get to 200, you're not going to be thinking, I'm going to sell the name here. Because if it's gone from 156 to 200, the macro concerns around the regulatory will have subsided. Right, it's one of those weird reflexivity yeah. things. Correct. So once you get to two hundred, you're going to be like fundamentals, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, like that's like this is what you're like. This is what you're trading here. Where like this is the nature of these kind of macro dynamic trades. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't advise anybody put too much into the positions like this. Right, it is what it is. They're appealing because you can you can benefit from that cycle, right? You go from 156 to 200, and then from 200 to 250, and so on and so forth. And you have like nothing new has to have developed in the business to kind of getting what you what you initially underwrote. Okay, makes sense. Do you want to? Where do you want to go next? We had talked about two other names we wanted to cover: Stitch Fix and Twitter. Well, what, why don't you talk talk to us about Stitch Fix, and then we'll finish with Twitter. All right. So what what's uh set it up? What's your what's your you at you tweeted about Stitch Fix. What are you curious about right now at Stitch Fix? What do you think? I don't know. Why is it so bad? I mean, like, was this just part of the SPAC meme phase, China, Archer goes who knows what cycle when it went to a hundred dollars in in January? Or is there like a, a growth story business to here that's still somewhat notably appealing that people should be spending time on is it misunderstood like what is what, what's going like i just look at the way it's traded and i'm like this reminds me of like some shorted fraud stock right there were some people who commented you know if you were like it's always had high short short, short interest it squeezes and then people just short it more because they actually don't like the business they don't buy into the business they think the business is crap they think the business won't work blah 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 yeah, I mean, let me pull up and read some of them. Yeah, there I, I have it in front of there's uh somebody said it's a giant stone tree lake cap, said it's a giant turd and always has been, always been highly shorted. Shorts have been squeezed a few times due to aggressive guidance they subsequently miss. Big moves gave the appearance that the business was working, FinTwit jumped all over it. So I like that. Giant turd and always has been. Somebody else tweeted about they, you know, the, someone defended it. They're, they're always optimizing their process, finding new ways to engage and increase AOV. It's a model that is not easily replicated due to time and dollars it takes to optimize and scale. They deliver every quarter. 
but yes, the shorts are in control now. Yeah, so I think it's a I think it's a stupid stock, and I'll explain that in a sec. And it's a biz, it's a good business that's mischaracterized. I think not necessarily by the leading people on the stock on Fintwit, but I think by both bulls and bears, it gets sort of put in the wrong category. And there's some uncertainty right now, which adds to a little bit more of this sort of possibility where the reflexivity of if the stock's doing bad, it might just continue to do bad for a while. It's earnings are coming out today. The We're recording this on Thursday, but the day this podcast come out is Tuesday, which is when their earnings come out after the bell. And so I think we'll get some cl- clarity there just in the sense of it's the end of their fiscal year. So they're going to have, I think they usually give guidance for the full year. So we should get a sense of where they're going. And it's going to be the first full quarter that Elizabeth Spalding, the new CEO, is uh, leading the company for. I forget. I think technically she took the CEO reins as of the end of the fiscal year, which is August. But I think the business-wise, so they had a really strong quarter to end the, the previous quarter, They but their performance has been rocky. And that's where part of the mischaracterization is that I think they get... they. You know, they're a 2010s company, Silicon Valley. So they get sort of considered like tech, but they're a retail business. And so it's not going to be this sort of, you can time their growth to a stopwatch the way those SaaS names we always talk about are. They're going to be lumpier. You throw in the dynamics of COVID, both in terms of supply disruptions during COVID and now in this period in the late pandemic where there's both the COVID related stuff and then just supply chain related stuff, that's going to make things harder to tell. There's also the whole, they had a lot of app downloads during the pandemic, but people didn't really need to get nice clothes. Now we're reopening. So there people are going to be interested in more clothes, but wait, are we really reopening that much? And that whole thing. So I think that's thrown a lot of twists into what, I think management would want to sell as a straight line growth story that you can count on a big opportunity that we're just getting started with. And yes, we have a unique model that nobody is really able to replicate. So I think that's there. That's sort of around the fringes. I think at the core, the the biggest news story that's come out is I think BuzzFeed reported it first that they lost a lot of stylists and it wasn't clear whether they lost them because they like they actually secretly wanted that or whether they overplayed like made an offer and then found out oh actually everybody wants to leave the information i had an article i I haven't read and i I probably should read that looked pretty interesting about i think where stitch fix is right now is they had sort of a cutesy concept at their core with the fix the box the surprise element when really what they're and they sold you on we have data, we're mixing data and stylists. And I found that appealing from just a, I don't want to say societal level exactly, but sort of the idea of they've come up with a model that is incorporating humans and keeping good for employment, et cetera, but is also incorporating big data and modern advantages. The truth is they're probably gearing towards the end point, which is really heavier on data 
And the strength of the data is not so much in picking out great styles as it is in getting you clothes that fit really easily without you having to spend time of it, time on it. So I think that's sort of where they're tilting. So they lose a third of their stylists. That should, in theory, lead to more efficient margins, I would think, more like better operating margins. And that's been my biggest concern in the last year is that their operating expenses have really gone up quite a bit after a business that was always run pretty lean and profitable even pre-public company stage. And so they have that big change. On the other hand, they've also sort of gotten rid of some of the like cutesier parts of the experience. You can now preview your clothes when you order a fix. So I did one or two fixes while I was in the States and I was able to see like, okay, here are 10 items, pick five of them. And so I did and it was great. I ended up keeping all of the five that I picked. So there's that's that's a low cost way for them to cut down on returns. And so it's a lot, it's like a no-brainer. Why didn't they do that earlier? So I think with the new CEO, it gives them a chance to just cut out some of the stuff and just go to a more streamlined retail experience. You can go. I also ordered direct buy a few. I really like some of their in-house brands for the feel of the clothes. And so I ordered a few t-shirts and a sort of light hoodie. And so I think they're, that's a long way of saying the company, I think, is in an interesting point. They posted a really strong quarter, but it was coming off their worst COVID quarter. They guided for 20% growth, which I don't know what the stacked number is, but it was, I think, the previous year, they grew something like maybe 12% in that quarter. It's still an easy comp. Quick note, Stitch Fix is laughing at 2.6% growth quarter a year ago. The quarters I was thinking of were Q1 and Q2 of this fiscal year. So the comp is even easier than I recall. Back to the show. I think you'll see, I, 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 you know, I'm not making an earnings call per se, but I don't expect a bad earnings. And I would think the forward guidance is, I'd be stunned if it's less than mid-teens growth. I think they still have room to build on where they are. And so I think they've they've kind of pared down their model, but there's some uncertainty around that that people are waiting on. And then the last thing I'll say, because I've been rambling for a while, the the stock is, yeah, I, I don't know what to say about the stock. I, until the last few weeks, the last time I bought shares of Stitch Fix, and it was never a huge position for me, but I bought a handful of shares right before the December or late November earnings last year in the mid-30s, Thought I would be feel stupid about it because I thought the fair, the right price to buy was more in the 20s. They had a good report and the stock took off. And then the short interest cover, the short covering seemed to take on a bit of a leg up. And then it got caught up in the whole crazy rally in January, got all the way up to 100. I did sell a few shares along that ride. And now, you know, now it's getting for a long time. I think the last time we talked about it, I said, you know, I like the company. The stock is still crazy. I think where we are now in the mid 30s, I think it's right around 35. I bought some shares at both 38 and 34. I feel like it's at the sort of reasonable price range where we're talking about less than $4 billion market cap, net cash balance sheet. Sales are over two billion, so we're talking about one and a half to one point seven five times sales twenty twenty one. So trailing basis in you know as of 
probably today once the report comes out. That doesn't seem crazy to me for something that I think should be able to grow in at least the teens for a few more years. And so I I think there's a lot of distaste for the sort of Silicon Valley aspects to it, even though they never got that much VC funding. And I think there's enough of that experiential, if the box didn't work for you, you don't like it and you don't understand how anybody else would like it. And I still, I think they have a big enough market. They're not going to be, I don't think they're going to be a giant the way they were priced at $100 a share or whatever, but I think there's, it's priced pretty interestingly. So I guess that's the, that's where I sort of sit with it right now. It's not a hundred billion dollar company thread. I don't, I mean, you know, not in the near future. I think they're, I guess, you know, could they be a double in the next, I, you know, I have like a basic five-year model that I probably did after the last quarter that has them putting strong growth the next two years and then a couple more years of teens growth before it kind of peters out and I could get you a number of 70 in the 70s, but that's like a five or six-year model. That to me, yeah, I think I think the 30s is like a reasonable price and the 20s, barring a surprise in the quarter, would be like an attractive price. And so I would probably build this into a full position in the 20s unless the quarter and the indications are really weak. Yeah, but $100 billion company, I think where, uh, with all due respect, to, I think it was Turner Novak who was the first one to make that thread. I'm not sure I see that any time in the, maybe in the decade. I mean, walk me through, like, I don't understand what transpired with the Silas. Is this, is this a work from home cultural thing? Is, are, are we talking about, like, from, from what I understood is that the new CEO comes in and they inform their stylist that they would now need to work 20 hours a week on a set schedule and we're going to track you versus work from home flexible schedule anytime and they would no longer be allowed to become full-time employees temporarily and if you didn't like these new rules they're going to give you a thousand dollars to leave but you got to sign an nda not to sue them and and then it turns out that more people took them up on that than they expected is i think the the basics as i understand it it's which sounds all of this sounds not to compare one woman CEO to another, it sounds a little bit like what happened with Marissa Mayer at Yahoo when she came in and was really staunch against remote work and flexible work. And I'm obviously, as probably come up in different contexts, a big proponent of remote and flexible work in general. And I think it's a positive for the economy. But yeah, I don't know. I don't, what I would surmise, I think somebody quipped that this is a typical sort of, I think Spalding's background is Bain. And this is a typical sort of like consulting, private equity sort of fix. But I think it's probably just trying to, if I had to guess, it's a little bit of both. We think that the algorithm is really strong. And so we're not, the stylists are more to kind of put a bow, are more quality assurance rather than a core feature of the product at this point. And so we just want them to be more we're willing to lean on our data a little bit more heavily. And on the other hand, probably just like uh, we need to just make this ship run a little bit more smoothly. We need to really focus on execution here 
and try to get closer to that sort of if you're Stitch Fix, you I think they're I wouldn't be surprised if Spalding's goal for the next fiscal year is to not ever have to point to operational issues as a reason we didn't succeed in terms of we left a few million boxes or thousands of boxes on the table because we had supply chain issues. Like it could be the other parallel, you know, a Tim Cook sort of, we're just trying to clean up things because we've got a good core product. We're simplifying it, making it, make it more straightforward. And that's what our aim is. Again, this is inference. It's not, I haven't done like, I've a weakness of the research I've done and of the research I've seen out there at large, I haven't gone to stylists and figured out like, what do you, what's your take? What do you see? I think that's really where I haven't seen a lot of expert calls on that. Like that's a big opportunity for someone to do the work, but yeah, that's, that's sort of how I am thinking about it as I enter this quarter, as I enter what we're going to see from the report today, again, as you're listening, but uh, yeah, that's sort of how I see it. All right. So we'll see. I think it's, I think it's interesting, like more interesting than when we last talked about it from a stock perspective. And I, I don't know why it's so loved and hated and seemed, you know, as a bull, I f- am more perceptive of the hate around the stock. It just seems like a good growth company that's priced relatively cheaply and that has some things to work on, but could turn out. I mean, it's one of those weird well. names because. Where it trades market cap wise in today's environment, considering so many people talk about it, like I mean, bubble or no bubble or whatever. When you like, when you look at a stitch fix down here, like, all right, this isn't like some twenty-five billion dollar controversy. It's not your example from last time of Sentinel One and their whatever that. No, the Sentinel One's growing like a weed, and the sector's super hot. I'm saying it's like it's not like some spec where like. It's fallen seventy percent, but it's still trading at eight billion, and uh, people are debating whether or not it will ever have any material business. Yeah, and it, and I think a lot of people will come back to, well, I had a bad experience, which, sure, but a lot of people seem to like it, and I, I mean, and to be frank, like the people in my life, it's probably mixed as well. My so I'm not saying that it's unanimous, even from what I've seen, Peter Lynch style, but. It seems like there's something there for enough people to where the business has legs. But, you know, we'll, we'll have more of an idea of that after today. Do you think uh, that, like this quarter, any type of volatility? It's her first quarter as CEO, right? Yeah. For, first, first, again, I think she probably, if I remember right, August 1st was the official to start the new fiscal year was when <laughs> Spalding officially became CEO. Yeah, I think there's there's potential for, I think that's, there's potential for volatility, and I sort of echo what you said with Baba, where at this point, I mean, they had a really good quarter and a positive reaction to it last time, and the stock is not quite half of what it was, but not far off from that. So I don't know what else, what further leg down hasn't been priced in, but who knows? We'll, we'll see. All right. So on let's, Twitter, let's wrap with Twitter. Goldman came out bearish on Twitter. What's your, uh, you know, we're, we're both long you, you more so than I, I bought back in, but you've been sort of pounding the, 
pounding the table on this for a while. What, what do you think of Goldman here? What, what do you make of the downgrade or the initiation? Well, I mean, he made it basically a long-term bear, bear argument with uh, a near-term update. I mean, first, it's a new analyst. He's coming from UBS. He's historically been very bullish on the, you know, the Facebooks and Googles. Not the biggest fan of, uh, of Twitter, so not shocking. But his argument was, wasn't exactly uh, shocking. Right. He's essentially saying that the guidance that they gave you at their analyst day, they're not going to hit it. <laughs> it's just, Pretty straightforward. Yeah. He doesn't think they're going to get to the users or the ARPU growth. And based on that, it came up with $60. I think that there's, I think the name still has a decent amount of confusion, even more so on the bull side. Like there's a, there's a degree from the bull side where like, they're really passionate. It's the Peter Lynch element using the product. You know, I mean, I, well, the guy who comes to mind the most is Benji on Twitter Spaces, who just loves Twitter, right? He's like, you, you, you never know. Like, it could be this big one day. And I mean, it's, I mean, like, the power user, I mean, there's no surprise, just like anything, is becomes an evangelist from a stock standpoint. So I think, uh, in his case, and in others, like there's been some some people on FinTwit lately who made arguments that you know, super follows and review and and all these things, and like they start doing math, it's gonna add a billion here, a billion there. I mean, like that's obviously not the case. I mean, like if you're investing in Twitter from here, and I mean, you know, I tweeted about this last week that it was the last week or the week before, I don't know where. I was even surprised how much Facebook's outperformed on the last six months, right? It's up 50%. Twitter's gone nowhere. And now if you look at them, they trade kind of similar EV to sales multiples. If you're buying Twitter today, you really expect it, it's ad business, particularly the performance side of their advertising, which has been something that they have had no presence really in successfully, is going to grow notably. So the company should outgrow like if you're looking, you know, one year forward, if you're buying the stock today, you expect it to outgrow the likes of Facebook and uh, and Google, for example. Which, by the way, when you consider the base of revenue difference, okay, not exactly saying much, but like it's got to do that for for a decent stretch if you want to be a shareholder. I still think that's that's likely. I do think we're kind of in a window with the timing of this call, like there's some social media fatigue, but the numbers so far seem to be from like uh, downloads on the app standpoint and, and what we're expecting on the MDAUs, but I, you know, like some fatigue from COVID and, and, and the whole COVID window and, and onboarding and social media, you know, what started with Pinterest and the guidance that they gave, but it looks like they, they, they may do better than, than the guide on uh, user growth. But but like I mean like you're you're a person who has a, a decent background on on some of these uh, creator related type tools and how hard it is to I mean here I'm experimenting with newsletter and like when you look at Twitter and someone's like if they get get fifteen percent of their user base in 2023 on Twitter Blue that's you know a billion dollars it's like well I mean. <laughs> 
like think about what percentage of people actually tweet because like twitter doesn't disclose these metrics like you really kind of have to dig around into the user behavior but i mean they may have they report roughly 200 million daily active users but it's like mid what is it 38 million in the u.s 38 37 million in the u.s when you think about monetization for subscribers like you got to be thinking a teeny slice of a teeny slice for a business like that because most people are engaged on it because it's free it's news even the micro payments we're talking about super follows and like i mean i had this conversation with bill and you know he was like i'm just kind of doing it feeling it out for for twitter but like he's like you know i feel like people are just supporting me because they like the podcast because it's kind of difficult to add a level of content that fits in there between free and between, you know, between like paying for a podcast or a long form newsletter in protected, you know, whatever you want to call them, like super follow only tweets, but you create an expectation once you pay that you're getting something more. Right. In which case you also now are on the hook accountability wise. So like when I look at super follows and you think like, you know, what percentage of people have more than 10,000 followers, you're probably talking, you know, less than 5% of Twitter accounts, right? For our listeners, this is a, not quite a, Akram is very close to that threshold. And so anybody who's listening who doesn't follow, get them there. And then we can call that. I don't uh, even look, am I? You're, I think you're like just shy of 9,000. So. We gotta get you get you there so that that becomes a eight thousand eight hundred and fifteen. There you go. So yeah. So if you go to this, if you so if you were to take something like this and you say, all right, like what percentage of people fit into this category? It's teeny. And when you look at review, it's not the primary focus. I think that they could do a lot more with what they're doing with it. But again, this is to to make it kind of a seamless user experience for a creator who's creating content that kind of fits into this, you know, t- the verticals where Twitter is good. But I don't think the needle moves enough for them to really invest in it and to change the user behavior in a way that you're not looking for anything here other than engagement and then making money off advertising. Well, and that's what I, I, what I wonder, you know, and my position right now is is small and it's sort of in a growth basket and it's sort of instead of, I still have too big of a cash position. So instead of cash, it's betting, you know, and obviously I trust the work you've done, et cetera. So it's sort of not big. But what I wonder about is, and you almost got to right there at the end, and you've kind of made this point before, all this, the public stuff, the building in public that Twitter is doing around spaces, which seems to have quieted it a little bit, even if it does seem like they won the showdown with Clubhouse or review or some of these other smaller purchases they've made that media people are more aware of or super follows twitter blue whatever they're all interesting but they all like you said they're tough to really add up to that big of businesses compared to the advertising and they've kind of led people to take their eye off that ball and get impatient either because they can't see how twitter will do all of that or they aren't seeing fast enough progress or, you know, in the super falls case, it just doesn't, it's not clear how that works. When, like you said, if they have the, enga- if they can manage on engagement and make this more attractive and make it a place where 
I don't know. I, I mean, I guess people probably went on Snap or Instagram to pay homage to Norm Macdonald this week, right? Like that was it. But that was a very good Twitter news event where people are talking about it and sharing videos and whatever. And so I just wonder if like, yeah, if that advertising piece, we've it was just, again, about 11 months ago that we had Rajiv on the first time to talk about how Twitter had really rebuilt their ad server to be able to do a lot better with that. And they're just like, maybe Twitter is moving slower than people would like, but that core advertising business is still just on the cusp of where it needs to be. And that could still deliver a lot of the upside for bulls. And we just, it doesn't get talked about as much as these other sexier new developments. Is that, does that make sense? Like, is that sort of in line with what you're thinking is, or how do you see that? No, no, I think that makes sense. I mean, look, we've seen numbers on Substack. We've seen numbers on OnlyFans. Like you understand how those businesses are run. And in the case of porn, right? Like, I don't think you're, uh, when I think of any other type of creator type business, I think it's a fraction of that. The only thing that you, like go, that could potentially maybe like get to economics would be like a ridiculous, like financial newsletter business, right? When market wise, the Stansbury business is not has not uh, done very well in the public market so far anyways. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is like, you would need to have something where like you're charging thousands of dollars. So a Bloomberg financial product, for example, when you think of a subscription business, but when you're sitting in this, like in between, I don't see it like remotely, particularly for a company as big as Twitter. And when you're talking about a business that's going to do over five billion in revenue this year, like a very successful take business would be generating a couple hundred million in net revenue. I mean, OnlyFans did like what three fifty, four hundred million in net revenue in twenty twenty, and even at the current rate, let's say they're double that. Like when you think about that, half of it's coming from subscribers, like thirty percent's coming from tips, right? So when you think about a business like that, and when you look at what's going on with Twitter. Like there's a lot of excitement around these tools, but then there's people who are are making this, you know, leap to that these things are going to be where the money comes from, and they're not really focused on the very basics, which is the direct response advertising business. Which again, the attractive thing about this, and uh, you know, I I don't think Seeking Alpha got all the way there when I was there with connecting this, but the attract, but there I I do notice. They're a little bit more aggressive about certain types of advertisements for non-subscription products. But getting engagement through these subscription products should be in this. I'm failing to find the vocabulary word here, but should go well with an advertising business. Like they should not be at loggerheads with one another. Obviously. Maybe Twitter Blue comes with some sort of ad-free component or, or whatever. Like at some point you develop a product that's an ad-free and that's fine. But it should be if you make Twitter a good place for creators to engage and make it attractive for them to want to be there, then 
your advertising business should do better too. And so it's almost a way of thinking that all these super follows and review and those sorts of things that are specifically for the creators, the point there, they're, they, they maybe aren't, shouldn't be viewed as revenue generators for Twitter so much as cost of acquisition. They should be decreasing Twitter's cost of acquisition of users, which then, or what, you know, again, I'm not, I'm mixing a bunch of different business models and metrics, but it should make it easier for Twitter to then serve ads. And so that's maybe the way to really, or their ads should get better or whatever the case may be. And so I think that's, a, that's something. I to mean, look, if they get better about. data, there's better right. targeting. Right. 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 That's what I mean. Exactly. So it, it's just, I mean, because they're developing these products in public, I don't necessarily think you're going to see this dynamic where people are like, oh, that's super fall. Like, let's say they shut super follows down. Okay, after they experiment with it, or in the same way they did with these fleets, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Rest in peace, fleets. But people, people have this. There's there's certain investors who are like using this as a measure of cadence, and I think that they're not looking at these tools immediately as as anything that should move the needle on revenue. Because like like we just said, if this makes the performance advertising business really start to take off or helps it really start to take off that's the goal to make money and i think jack has conveyed this message right like for all the talk around subscriptions i feel like for him he's still thinking core advertising he did bring that up i think i don't know what was it the q4 it was in February or March where he was just like, look, the ad market's really, really, really big and we have a really, really teeny slice. So subscription, whatever. Uh, yes, we're going to experiment here, but we're focused on this. And the stock kind of gets caught up in you know, this recent hype around a lot of these things where, I mean, Professor Galloway was also a very vocal guy around it, but the whole this website's free thing is kind of a key part of the business model. I also think particularly, there's... Particularly for the user. I, I think similar to, similar to both of the other names we talked about, in Baba's case where people are worried, of, you know, so focused on what's going on now with Alipay and all these other regulations that they're, they're like bringing the wrong lens and losing sight of the core business was your argument. And then Stitch Fix where people are sort of annoyed with how it gets put in a tech box. And so then they want, okay, if you're a tech company, then give us consistent, predictable growth. And it's not, it's retail. And so they get frustrated. And with Twitter too, there's a little bit of, you have finance people who will make comments about what's the cadence or they'll compare it to Facebook or whatever. And I don't think Facebook actually rolls out new compelling products all that fat or features all that fast either. So not really sure where people are looking at. And then on the yeah, other side, done a couple and done really well with it. Yeah. They, you hit a home run and then you stick with it. And then on the other side of the coin, you have all the new sort of tech oriented people who've come into the market and who are more Peter Lynch style. And so they lose sight of the, they might lose sight of the valuation or whatever. And in Twitter's, so like, I feel like there's, it's tough that like these two lenses kind of get, they don't always yield the Venn diagram 
2020 vision, they sometimes clash with one another. And I think that might be also what you're sort of getting at a little bit is like people are waiting for Twitter to do X or Y because they're applying a different lens that might not match what's actually happening where, you know, Twitter, like you said, the last time we talked about their quarter had a really good quarter. Like they've, their performance has been since the Q3 last year has been pretty solid. And that's ultimately all you're looking for is for good performance for them to tell you what they're doing and then live up to what they're doing. And that that's what's interesting about the Goldman call is you said that he's basically just saying, I don't think the company will hit their numbers, which is a variant view. And that makes it's like very clear then if that's that's the bear yeah, case. The thing they can do the user growth. And in this window, I don't think you're going to have uh, in the upcoming quarter, particularly when you give an update on the long term like this right now. I don't think anyone's going to look at this quarter and be like, oh, it's a shoe in for them to hit this 300 million by the end of 2023. Like if you wanted to pick a time to cast that doubt, although like they did guide conservatively. I mean, one of the, I, let's not say let's not use the word conservatively. They did guide based on what's going on in the market, right? So that guidance is, I think that guidance factors in seasonality and the headwinds in the user dynamics online. So if they're trending above that, that will be an indication that engagement is actually doing better. And that's what the data seems to indicate so far, right? I mean, Pinterest is stabilized, supposedly, based on the you know app data. Uh, Twitter's trending better than, than Pinterest. So if Twitter is trending better on uh, on the user metrics, like then he picked a really bad time to to make that argument because we're expecting upside to, to current consensus numbers on revenue still. I don't think uh, I don't think you're at a point where you can make an argument that the the ad market takes a hit and uh, that gets in the way. But I mean, at least for the next six months, like I think that I, I still think the street numbers are, are a little too low for for what Twitter is going to do. I mean, I think they can, I think they can do over 5.2 billion in the year. So there's a good upside there. And if the user numbers trend better, like the stock is going to get, I mean, the stock's going to pop 20%. And that's what, that's, what's kind of nice about a bear case like that, which is, I, I mean, I think it's, it is because it's a variant for you, but then it, it, the market listens, pays attention that sets it up so that management just has to hit their numbers or get it. Like they don't have to, there are some companies where everybody believes management such that if they don't beat their numbers, they are sold off. I mean, the old Apple thing where Apple had to reset expectations around how they did guidance. Now with Twitter, it's like if they just hit their numbers or like you said, if there's a little bit upside that filters in at certain points, like that's all you need for the stock to move ahead of the market's expectations. So that makes it interesting. Yeah, and you've gotten you've gone through a protracted period of relative underperformance. So if you're a person who's been like you're forced to make these decisions, right? Do I buy Facebook, do I buy Google, do I buy Twitter, Pinterest, Snapchat, right? Like if you want to look at these businesses that are focused on core advertising uh, online. So you're now paying like eight and a half, nine times EV to this year's revenue for Twitter. So that, that gap before where Facebook was, I mean, arguably Facebook deserves a lower multiple if you're looking over the, the longer term, particularly at, at how big it is without question on EV sales. But 
I mean, Facebook has risen, risen 50%. So like your, Facebook is no longer trading in like the value Facebook range. Because I mean, all the times we've had these conversations on Twitter, it was always like, yeah, but I can still buy Facebook here. And it turns out that that was the right move. I mean, selling, I think from where I sold Facebook, it's risen 50%. And I thought when I bought Facebook, I was getting a steal. And I did continually look at Facebook and be like, huh, it's just, it's going to trade here because this is, it's just too big. And like the bigger names are going to trade in this category. And that's really not what you've seen recently, right? Some of the bigger names have gotten really, they have multiples. This goes back to the conversation we we're having about Stitch Fix earlier, where I'm like, I kind of look at it. I'm like, all right, like I get there's a, a significant debate around the, the underlying business, but this is not a nosebleed stock. So in, when I look at a name like that and I, and I see that, I'm just like, you know, why is, why is there such extensive uh, controversy around it? When there's some nosebleed things with, I mean, they're names with $2 billion market caps that are highly unlikely to exist in a few years. Yeah, yeah. It's still a weird market in that. And so that's where the relative expectations and something like a Twitter in this case, like the setup is interesting. So Look, it's always about the forward growth curve, right? At the end of the day. So, and I think you, you got to be sensitive to uh, where that's at and uh, what you're dealing with there. I mean, like you've seen it with Zoom. I mean, where Zoom trades today is a huge function of the fact that the market, people in the market are now highly confident that the next six months is going to be very soft relative to where it's been, which is not leading. Like you could make an argument that if you're a long-term investor here, like you're paying 15 times forward revenue for Zoom. If you think Zoom comes out of this COVID, uh, post COVID pocket and is still a 20% grower for years to come, it's cheap. But like it's, it's in a window right now where there's, there's a lot of confidence around it barely growing at all. So in Twitter's case, if you're looking at it today and you're long as I am. You're, you're extremely confident that the performance advertising business is, is taking off and that you're going to outgrow current expectations still, you know, in the immediate term with the, like with the visibility you presently have. So let's call that like, you know, six months out. It's really, it's really hard to have much visibility beyond that. And then that you're buying a stock that balances those risk rewards over a longer term time period. Yeah. And I think least of all as compared to the market, but then yeah, it it's 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 got an interesting setup. And I think part of it comes from most of the conversation being around other things that are not quite as important as that core performance advertising business. So or I guess you could argue brand advertising was more core, but performance growing so all right i think uh it's interesting i think those three names kind of connect to each other pretty well when you i mean maybe it's just because we talked about them really? together <laughs> but i think there's a way you can there are there are echoes of those three names as we kind of as i think about it over the course of the conversation so 
Yeah, I mean, they're not, uh, you know, market darlings. Certainly not. <laughs> Certainly, not. <laughs> it was. What you did a little, you did a little quiz of which stocks have traded the same, and I think Stitch Fix was in the worst bucket, right? It was in the, it was in the like you yeah, said, it's like yellow. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> what can you do? I uh, I was never selling all uh, sunshine and roses. So we'll see where we go from here. I mean. With the benefit of hindsight, there's just so much that went on in that window in in November through January that you, people are going to look back, you know, in ten years and be like, "What was happening here?" <laughs> yeah, and it was really like, like actually nobody really nobody really knew. Yeah, and you could point, you could say, "All right, apes," and well, I mean, I don't think the apes were around yet, but GameStop and Roaring Kitty and all that. But yeah, some names got swept up along with it, and. And I, you know, it was more of a behavioral decision that I didn't sell everything at the top, but I did, uh, yeah, I, I, I was looking that one in the eye. And so now we'll see where we are from the other side of it. But good stuff, Akram. I think that's just a fun conversation. A lot, of, a lot of interesting things to watch from these names going forward. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Sokel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.